having looked forwards all the time. It's nice to see your faces. We're, we're going to be talking about the passage, the Syrophoenician woman, in a bit. It's quite a disturbing passage. I don't know if you got it because the passage was wrong on the screen. Um, but it is a very odd passage. Jesus meets this lady. We'll talk a little bit about the environment where he, he does. And she's pleading with him, even while he's eating his dinner, to heal her daughter. And he then says to her, the children should finish their food before the dogs get anything. Which is quite rude, if you think about it. Imagine if you went to Jesus in prayer and you said, please can I have something? And he says, you're a dog, so wait. That's quite an odd thing, isn't it? So we need to look at that and why he would say that. And then she says, well, why can't the dogs have the crumbs? And he says, you can have your miracle. Which is an interesting change of tune from one sentence before. So we're going to examine that in a bit. Before we do, I'd like to share a little bit about Grassroots. Grassroots is quite a complicated organisation. It's got different places, all, different things happening in different countries all over the world. I'd like to tell you about one place, which is Tanzania. Very near Ndola, just the other side of the border in Tanzania. And the town is called Mbeya. And when we first started working there, when I was here in June, I told you a little bit about how we first started working there. My wife felt called to go there. And initially, it was literally just to meet a few churches and to do a bit of children's work in the churches. Today, we're supporting 2,500 children through, their edu through education. And uh, the difference between grassroots and compassion, I'm not going to try and do it, the difference between MFA and the rest, because it gets too confusing, is that compassion basically says this. You sponsor a child, and we will connect you with a child somewhere in the world on multiple different projects. And we need to make sure that the amount you give is enough for any of those children at any stage of their education. Whereas Grassroots says, this is how much we're going to spend on this child in this situation. So in Tanzania, it's £3.50 a month that we spend on each child who is a primary school child. Once they become secondary, we spend £15 a month. And we spend 100% of that money on the child. That's the subtle difference. It isn't just a kind of broad brush stroke. It is, this is how much it costs here, and we will give 100% of the money to the child. We trust God for the rest. Okay? So, let's have a look at a video. I'm hopeful. <coughs> what do you think? Oh, it's going to happen. The children, they, they got hope through the organization, because some they are lost. Now, some children, who sponsored. Now they, they feel good and they, they think well. Grassroots, they promise and they do. And I couldn't really like about that. Since it started in 1998, the grassroots project in Tanzania has carefully grown, little by little, until in 2013, nearly 3,000 children and young people are supported at nine different centres. Tanzania is a poor but stable East African nation that is still largely pastoral. Although not suffering from high-profile famines, there are many poor and malnourished families for whom food can be scarce between harvests. A lack of water and health care, 
food price increases and diseases inhibit the quality of life and as always children are the biggest sufferers. Working with local churches in the Mbeya region of Western Tanzania, Grassroots provides a direct channel for sponsors to support Tanzanian children and students with their education, nutrition and much more. Run and managed by nearly 70 Tanzanian staff and volunteers, Grassroots Tanzania provides a nutritious weekly meal for every child on the scheme and often feeds many others as they visit the various bases. Feeding stations have been established in several schools and some churches. The children eat a meal of staples and can drink fresh, clean water from a grassroots well or water filtration system, often provided by supporters through the alternative gift scheme. Preschool children are able to get the additional nutrition they need at the daily milk programme. The sponsorship scheme also provides the uniform, shoes and books which makes school possible and starts the children on the path of learning. Despite best intentions, education is not free in Tanzania. Two professional doctors are salaried and available each weekend for surgeries where sponsored children can receive care and free medicine. With grassroots, a little goes a long way. Food is usually purchased in bulk for the best price. Wages are appropriate and not excessive, and vehicles, which are paid for through separate fundraising, are serviceable but not new. Above all, the sponsorship does not bring luxury. It is subtle and addresses only basic needs, but it really does help. Sponsorship of a Tanzanian child costs from £3.50 per month. It is relatively cheap because the cost of living in Tanzania is low and because every penny gets spent on the child. What's more, there are no administration fees and no marketing costs taken from the sponsorship amount. Many sponsors choose to give more than the £3.50, which along with the UK Gift Day programme helps enormously with the additional expenses of running the scheme. £3.50 is not enough to cover everything. All sponsors are given regular updates by post or email. Twice a year, teams from the UK interview, photograph, weigh and measure the children, and the children write letters to the sponsors. There are more opportunities with alternative gifts. Cows, pigs, blankets and lights can be bought and make a huge difference to the families who receive them. She's very Almost all the time, new needs and situations that require help are uncovered. So Grassroots Tanzania is constantly growing and developing. Some of the sponsored children are now at university. Others are involved in the interviewing process and all of them are grateful for the difference the scheme has made. Here, many of the people that not have employment, so they cannot afford those expenses of going abroad the children to school. When the grassroots came and they started to collect those children to put it together as one family, that's why the society came, the attitude changed. They thought, ah, these people, why? Why they do this? I can do the same as the grass are doing. That's my dreams because you know that the grass is just helping me and me, I, I, help, I have to help other children. Yes. My attitude is tired to help others because if it, if it is or not, not grassroots, I will not be here. So grassroots, it has given a lot of support 
to we Tanzanians. That's why the sad can be changed from negative to positive about an offense. It means a lot to me because grassroots helped me to be how am I now? Yes. And I really thank them. If it was not a glass loot, I think I wouldn't reach anywhere. From small beginnings, Grassroots Tanzania now reaches numerous needy families and several thousand people have the delights of being able to change a life through sponsorship. A little really does go a long way. Isn't Mission Sunday fun? <laughs> you see all these lovely photographs of places in the world and you think, oh, I'd like to be there when the weather's like it is here and things like that. And only two weeks ago, we actually had 15 or 20 people over in Tanzania interviewing all the children, which is uh, quite a task. Within a week, we now have a bank manager who comes pretty much every year as a volunteer and he takes all the photographs and then has to collate them on a computer and then we have to know which photograph is which. Uh, in order to be able to, but, but you know, we're not an international organization, it's all run out of our house. If you came to our house like David did last week, you will see a pile of pieces of paper this high, and each one represents a child who is being sponsored. And as well as being in school every week, they come once a week to a church. And as a result of coming to that church, there is a club there, and there's a little bit of singing, and they get a meal. And vast numbers of the children come to know Christ over an extended period. All those kind of older teenagers there, that was in 2013 we did that video. We don't do one every year because we don't have the money. Um, now in 2019, instead of saying there are nine centres, there are 16 centres. Uh, each one of those centres is a church plant. Uh, the, when we first went over there, there was one church we were working with. There are now 28 churches that we're working with. And they also have about 15 churches in Zambia, on the, uh, closer to the Tanzanian border. Because we're working with church to see people become Christians. We're working with community to develop those communities. Recently, we just went through a very interesting phase where we went to Ndola with some of our Tanzanians. And we don't have any British people living over in Tanzania. We think that's a waste of money. But I won't say anything more about that. Because um, in principle, Tanzanians are brilliant at working in Tanzania. One of the annoying things is they don't always work like British people. But they actually understand Tanzania better than British people. And as a result, we say, why don't you do this? And they say, yes. And then we come back six months later, and they didn't do that. They did something else. And it worked better than what we would have suggested, because they're in charge. And uh, those Tanzanians went to um, Ndola in Zambia and learned from Zambians about how to do development work with adults. You can see we've been mostly working with children, but a lot of the parents are stuck in poverty, even while the children come out of poverty. And we went to a program in Ndola, literally next to Mechanics for Africa, which is working with 60 churches in Zambia. And each one of those churches is reaching out into the community to 20 families. So if you add that together, that's 20 families times 60. And they're doing it with a tiny budget supported by Samaritan's Purse UK. And they took our team in, and we spent a whole week training 
our team from Tanzania. I went along and learnt, not that it will be any use to me, but if I understand it, at least I will be able to go along with what's going on. And the principle is that they're going to go back to Tanzania and they've just started a pilot project with seven churches in Tanzania to reach out to adults to get them out of poverty. And this is the way it works. You get those 20 adults from representing 20 families together for a Bible study once a week and you tell them this. God has given you everything you need to get out of poverty already. You give them no money, no money, and no things. You tell them that God has given you everything you need. The only thing they get is an inspirational person to turn up, to lead some Bible studies, to work with the church and say, this will work if you'll do it together. If you will work together and you'll pool your resources, it's a bit of savings and loans, and you will have a vision, God has already given you bits of land. You've already heard David talking about bits of land in Zambia next to people's houses. Bits of land, talent, time. And if you invest that, you'll be surprised how quickly God gets us, not as individuals, but together out of poverty. And because we've got together out of poverty, then as individuals we'll get out of poverty and families will come out of poverty. And the amazing thing, I spent those few days in training going from community to community where they had been in abject poverty and even the church, every member was in abject poverty. Two and a half years in, they were coming out of poverty without having been given anything except an inspirational person. And that was fantastic. So Happiness, who you might have seen up on the screen before, uh, one of the girls who was talking there, she's now got a law degree. She started at six as an orphan in Tanzania. She's gone through the child sponsorship program. She's got a law degree. She came on the training. She's gone back and she's going to be running together, as we call it in Tanzania, for the seven pilot churches. Now, why am I telling you all of that? I have no idea what it will look like in Tanzania, but I know it works in Ndola. It's fantastic and extraordinary. Churches getting stronger, even very small churches, because they're targeting and working with the 20 most vulnerable families in their community, they are seeing evangelism happen, people becoming to Christ, and also people coming out of poverty without being given anything except advice and inspiration. And um, the, the reason I'm telling you it is because of the Goldilocks effect. Some of you are still with me. Child sponsorship is brilliant and sustainable. You put money in, and out comes somebody who's gone to university or gone to college, Firuzi there is a, a teacher in schools, on a, is a lovely, a lovely teacher, you'd love to have him as a teacher, but he's also sponsoring more children himself and he's supporting his entire family as a result of it, so his entire family has come out of poverty. Um, it is possible therefore through child sponsorship to make a massive difference. Those of you who are doing stuff with compassion, compassion say for every pound you put into the pot in sponsorship, in that country, it will make about 50 pounds through the lifetime of the person that you invest in. In other words, for one pound, you make 50 pounds. In relief, for one pound, you make about 20p. Uh, if you just give people handouts, on the whole, for one pound, you give them one pound. But if you do child sponsorship, it gives you about 50 pounds. But the program that we've just been talking about in Andola, they've done a study on that, and for every one pound that is put into that program by Samaritan's Purse, it makes about 500 pounds in the community 
over the lifetime of the people involved. So it's amazingly effective. And you sit there and think, why don't we all do that? Well, Tier Fund do that. And you know, there's lots of programs like it. That's why we went and trained our people and said, let's do it in Tanzania. I'll tell you why we don't all do it, and that's this. It's taken two and a half years for those communities to begin to come out of poverty. Many of those families have children. Those children, in that two and a half years at the beginning, weren't getting enough food, and weren't getting an education, and weren't getting GP-level care. So in Tanzania, we say, just like in England, children should get enough food, GP-level care, a little bit of child benefit, be able to go to school free, because it's right that children should get that, even if people are poor. Do you see what I'm saying? So child sponsorship's right for children, but together is right for adults. What is right in any situation matters. If you do the wrong thing, if you're in a tsunami, you say, oh, we need to do child sponsorship. You know, everybody's just been wiped out by the, a, a major flood. We'll do child sponsorship. It won't be of any use. Nobody's, no schools exist. We need to start rebuilding the schools and we need to start feeding people. We need to start turning up and rescuing people with helicopters, even if we waste money. But if you get into another situation where you've got lots of people living as adults and not taking advantage of what they already have, then you need to do together. The question is, what's God calling you to do? But also, because I, I meet people, they say, oh, God's calling us to do this. And I go, but your brain says it's not the right thing to do. Do the right thing in every situation. And use your brain and allow God to use that. And then get the sensitive from the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the example of Jesus doing just that. So that's the big picture. Here's Jesus. Here he is going around Israel, preaching the gospel, and uh, bringing people to healing, mostly. It was mostly about healing and teaching them. And that's the wonderful passage. Then, around it, it says in Matthew's gospel that all the way through the day, this woman kept bugging everybody. Now, there's a basic problem with the woman, according to the entire group of people who are with Jesus. She is a foreigner. Now, I don't really want to make a big fuss about this, but the people of that day, the Jewish people of that day, were deeply nationalist and deeply xenophobic, and they believed that God was their God and the rest of the world were dogs. And, you know, that's not a very nice thing to say, but that's what they believed. In fact, they became very angry if you said that God had a plan for anybody else apart from the Jews. You say, well, very angry, not very angry, because they were nice people. No, they were really not very nice about this. The first time Jesus preached in Nazareth, which was his hometown with his own family present, guess what happened? He mentioned the fact that in the Old Testament, God helped a couple of foreigners. That was the whole point of his message. That, you know, even though there was the whole of Israel, God gave his blessing to people who were foreigners. They were so angry, they took him to the edge of the town to push him off the cliff. That's how angry. Now, I know that Milford Baptist is a nice place, but if you were xenophobic, it would be a bit scary getting into that message, wouldn't it? But you're not like that, and even when you are angry, you kind of go, hmm. Which is a slightly British way of being xenophobic. But those people were deeply 
reactionary to this kind of issue, right? That's the whole of society in Jesus' day. So there's this woman going around saying, help my daughter, help my daughter, please, I need to get to Jesus, in the big crowds, and the apostles find her annoying, right? Not just, not just everybody else, but the apostles, the ones that we regard as the great saints of the church. They found her really annoying, and they asked Jesus to send her away, it says in Matthew's Gospel. But Jesus said nothing. Now, you might think saying nothing is not good enough. Well, if he'd said something, it would have ruined everything. Because the only thing that Jesus would have said, because we know what Jesus is like, is let's talk to you. But he didn't say that. He said nothing, because it would have been highly controversial to have done anything with a foreigner. So that evening, the meetings are finished, and he's back in the house. He's sitting there, and they're doing food. So they're all sitting around in a meal, and uh, the apostles and other people are there. And then this woman turns up at the door. This woman, I'm putting her, but she's an annoying woman, according to all the apostles, right? They're going, oh, no, not again. In fact, she causes so much trouble at the front door of this little house, which they're having their food in, that she breaks through James and John, the sons of thunder, and gets into the room. Imagine this. There's Jesus. He's, he's probably not sitting on a chair like we sit on a chair, but kind of, kind of lying down and eating food. And this woman breaks through the crowd of minders that are stopping the famous person having people get to him over food, because they do meetings, but the rest of the time it's meant to be private. And she comes right to his feet, and it says she lay at his feet and cried out to him. I'd love to do the drama. How many of you would like to be the woman doing the drama? Right? It, just imagine, here's Jesus sitting there, and she is at his feet going... <laughs> now, best description of what she looks like is a dog. Right? She looks like a dog. And Jesus... Um, he knows that the people of Israel thought of all foreigners as dogs. So in the context, he says, wouldn't it be great if we, the children, could finish our meal before we give something to the dogs? In other words, multiple layers of point. He's saying, you're behaving a bit like a dog. He's saying, we are eating our food. The meeting was earlier. This is the food time. This is not really the time for meeting. Couldn't we do things later? This is inappropriate timing. He's also saying something absolutely enormous, which is that God has a plan. Now, we know, because we've read the Bible, that God's plan is to complete the law with the Jews, that Jesus will die on a cross, rise from the dead, then the Holy Spirit will come, and the gospel will then go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the dogs. That's the order that God has already planned in history. And Jesus puts it in a very simple way, which is let the children first finish the food, and then the, then the rest can go to the dogs. Yeah? That's what he's saying. That's a theological statement about God has a plan and a purpose and a way he's doing things. But here's the basic problem that all of those people listening to Jesus have. And that is that God is not just the God of the Jews. 
He is the God of the whole world. They didn't like it, but it is true. The gospel first for the Jews and then for the whole world. He is as much the God of us as he is for them. It's just there's an order of the way it's going to happen. So here we have the problem. Jesus has given a, a, a could we do this later? You're behaving a bit like a dog, which is quite a funny thing to say. And then, but it's in the context of immense emotions in the room. That if he gives the impression that God is the God of this woman as well as the God of the Jews, he's in seriously dangerous territory. So he stands with that line, and then she says the classic line. And in some senses, we'd have to say this was a prayer, because she was talking to God. Physically there, but she was. It's the equivalent of our kind of praying. And she says to Jesus, can't the dogs have the crumbs from the children's table? Now, because it's been in the Bible for years, we do not get the fact that that was extremely funny. And Jesus, it appears in Mark's Gospel, goes, for such a reply, as if to say, I really love that line. That's the perfect one-liner. Thank you. For that, your daughter has been healed. Go. And she gets up and goes with great confidence. In other words, and this is very important for all of you who started being desperately serious here at Milford Baptist Church and worrying about all sorts of detail stuff, if you really want to pray well, pray funny. It's clearly in the text that Jesus loved, and remember Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Jesus that was there that day is the Jesus we talk to today. He loved the funny reply. It was all very, very tense, all very upsetting. And he goes, there's a big plan, and in the big, the big plan of God, you get the grace later, lady, because you're a Syrian. Syrian. And God says, in that moment, she comes back with a, a funny reply, and he goes, for such a great reply, you can have your miracle now. You don't have to wait for later. In other words, God changes the time scale for her because she talks to him. Isn't that great? The entire timescale of God's purpose got changed because of relationship with Jesus. Now that is Christianity. Christianity says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always the kind of God who, when you talk to him and you look him in the face and say, please, he takes you seriously and is prepared to change his entire plan to fit you because relationship is more important to him than the big plan. All the rules, all the rules that have been imposed by all the people around him and what everybody thinks, he's prepared to cut right across it, just like that, and take the flak for it, which of course will be the cross. Because that's what they killed him for. Loving people, rather than going with the program. That's why they got angry with him. And that's okay. It's all right to die for that. There are lots of things that aren't worth dying for, but die for that, don't you think? Die for loving someone and responding to them because they need your help now. And if you're Jesus, and I, I want to tell you this as well, which I find amazing. See, I th I th there are some Christians that think that God only does miracles when you've sung about 25 songs. Have you noticed that? There were no songs sang that day. In fact, it was a mess and it was angry. Some people think the only time God will do a miracle is if everybody's in unity. They were clearly not in unity. The only person who was in unity was Jesus, by himself. 
And he looked and he loved that lady. He loved her response and he sent a miracle back to her home. And the girl was healed in that moment. Hallelujah. That's the same Jesus we know today. When you pray. Here's another part of that story. How many times have you prayed for something and then prayed for it and then prayed for it again? Maybe when you've seen... Do you remember, do you remember this? This is my red rope. These are all prayers for people who you love. Some of you put prayers on this rope. They were the tags with their names. You put the prayers on it. It's quite extreme, this. I like it. There we go. And in the middle is the, the red rope representing Jesus. And the reason why all these prayers are here is because somebody loves somebody. And so far, having prayed, nothing's happened yet. You know when God works, do you? I told you this last time I was here. When does God work? Always a bit too late. Did you get that? Do you hear me? It's always a bit too late, Jesus. Did you know that? Some of you are going, no, 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 that's right. When preachers preach, they always say the thing about God is he doesn't come straight away, but he comes just in time. That is not true. Jesus always turns up just too late. But once he's turned up, he does something totally extraordinary, which changes just too late to just in time. Because, you know, when Jesus was on the cross, they said you should get down off the cross before you die. But he doesn't. He dies. Even on the Saturday, he doesn't do anything. He goes around preaching to the dead, according to part of the Bible. And on Sunday morning, he rises from the dead. And his apostles and disciples, they thought, Jesus is going to die, so we need to persuade him not to die. And they prayed and prayed and prayed, and nothing happened. And then we get to Saturday, and they're going, huh. And then they get to Sunday, and they've already given up. So they go to the tomb to embalm his body. And then he's done everything necessary to reverse the entire problem, which is called rising from the dead. That is the way God works. So have you given up praying? This lady, one of the glorious things about this lady, I was just in all the shop Baptist last week, and they put a really good knot on this. <laughs> you can't trust Baptists. You leave them to themselves. They go off and they make things more difficult. <laughs> Oh, sorry, didn't mean to blow into the microphone. There are a lot of prayers on here. If you put a prayer on this last time, you're thinking, oh, I don't need to do it again. You don't. But you gave up praying. Some of you. Some of you didn't. Some of you gave up praying. You look at that lady. She didn't give up. She was a pain all day. And even when the meeting had finished, she hadn't given up. She was going to get to Jesus, even if the entire culture said she shouldn't. That's mission. Mission is for yourself and your family and for the world. You keep going. And you keep going. Some of you know that what you actually need is to remember to pray for the person you put on this rope last time. As I say, it's been all over the world. If you need to remember, I have a little thing. You see, it says in the Bible you need to agree in prayer. If two of you agree about anything on earth, in my name, says Jesus, it'll be done in heaven. 
So here's something you can't do by yourself. You get a piece of rope and you tie it onto your... Now some of you will be just so clever, you'll be able to do this. All right, but normal human beings cannot tie a knot with one hand. They need somebody else to tie a knot. And this is a way of saying, I want to agree in prayer. And whoever you help with, say, this is what I'm praying about. And then you're going to wear that for a week or a few days to remind you to keep praying, to keep going like that lady, to keep pushing through. Because world mission is not all about Zambia and Tanzania and Central Asia, where I'll be in two weeks' time, and Kenya and Romania, where I'll be. Oh, look, look, we've got PowerPoints working. I can show you lots of interesting, nice pictures. There's a world. That's London. That's kind of vaguely where we are. We work there. That's Romania. And as I say, £8 a month there. £6,000 to build a house. We built more houses for people in Romania than any other organisation. And that's in, the, in Transylvania. It's not just famous for Dracula. Um, we work with Christians there. They're lovely people. I'm going really quickly. Then Egypt. We work in Egypt. We don't, you won't find that on our website. In Egypt, we do microfinance because it's Goldilocks for Egypt. It's brilliant. Can't tell you anything about it on our website, but I will be there in December going into a brilliant project. Let me tell you how we got into Egypt. There is a lovely pastor in a church in Suez. When the second revolution happened, the church nationally stood with the new dictator, General Sisi, who then became President Sisi. And the local people who, who supported Morsi were mostly the really poor, downtrodden Muslims. They hated the church for it, and they tried to burn all the churches down. They, ch they burnt down at various Catholic churches, but the Anglican church, the vicar, was on the roof picking up the Molotov cocktails and throwing it back, and with the other hand, phoning people, saying, don't come to the prayer meeting tonight, it's a bit dodgy here. <laughs> he saved his building. In the prayer meeting following that occasion, he said to his people, uh, God has called us to love our enemies as well as our friends and love our neighbours who happen to be our enemies. So we're going to start a, a centre right in the middle of the Muslim Brotherhood area to reach out to people and provide help for them. Grassroots funds the microfinance project in that community organised by the church. And there is now a fellowship group there. We don't call it a church, but it's a wonderful place. You would love being there. And I shall, all I ever do is go over there and give them a bit more money and come home again. It's just the most amazing place. Okay, so that's Egypt. There you are, supporting small families, small grants. These are the guys who actually do it. Look at their nice smiley faces. And then we go on to Kenya, two projects, good neighbours, Watuamana. Did you notice that Watuamana was a bit more expensive? You probably didn't. Five pounds is like what we do in Tanzania. 20 pounds, full board for children off the street. But we don't keep the children because the aim is not to get children and warehouse them. The aim is to get them back into families. Yeah? So then Tanzania, you've heard all about that. I just want to tell you about one. Oh, oh and there's India. You would love India. One church. I said to David, uh, he said, oh, you work in India. And I said, yes. It's almost like he was saying, so you do India. And I was thinking, no, we don't really do India. We do one church 
in one slum in a major city, and they're our friends. So we go there the whole time. I, I, I've, now I've been to India lots of times, but I've always flown into the same airport, stayed in the same hotel, gone in the same rickshaw, pretty much, to the same community, which is a slum, a horrible place, and met the same 300 children who we support over and over again, and then flown back again. I don't do India. I do Kevin and Deborah, who are the pastor of this church. When we first went there, they had 100 members. They've now got 800 members. And they're all converts from Hinduism. Amazing. Fantastic place. You'd love it. Uh, you can go there in January with us, if you like, to meet all the children. And then there's Lao. I'll leave that up there. It's great fun doing mission, trying to get it right in every situation. The most important thing is to love people. And we're just running out of time, aren't we? Some of you need one of these red cords. Some of you need to write a prayer because mission is actually about the person who you're trying to reach. It isn't really about nations and projects. It's about people. One of the things that's a problem with the people who were around Jesus at the time is that they thought it was about a project and it was about their people. It wasn't about their people. It was about God trying to reach people the whole world, and the team for Jesus were the Jews to reach the rest of the world. You are the team for Jesus. You're here to reach the rest of the world. You can do it through prayer and action and money. You can do all of those things. I don't really care if none of you sponsor any children with us. If you keep doing what you're doing, fantastic. That's why I didn't really want to talk about it last time. But I do want this you to get hold of how exciting this stuff can be. That day, when Jesus met that woman, okay, it was terribly tense, but at the end of it, her daughter was completely healed. Something extraordinary happened. It became such a big story, it got in the Bible. I've got numerous stories, numerous stories of people who God just transformed because we worked with them. One tiny little story. In India, I took a young man called Sam to India. He later became a, a vicar, and then, as Anglican, only Anglicans do, he became a canon. Which is weird, isn't it? That you become a big gun in the Church of England. And he is a fascinating man. Did I tell you this story last time? He sat down with two children who he, we were just interviewing for the sponsorship scheme, and he found out about their father. Their father was an alcoholic, a horrible alcoholic. He went home and decided he would not drink alcohol, which for Anglican vicars is odd. And um, in order to pray as an ongoing prayer for these two little children. So two years later, he is in a cocktail party with his bishop. And the bishop says, Sam, you must have a glass of wine. And he says, oh, I, I, I don't. He said, well, you don't drink. He said, well, no, I do drink, but I, I'm not going to drink. And the bishop said, oh, don't be so stupid, and thrust this glass of wine into his hands. Strange situation. And he felt embarrassed into drinking. And then he felt desperately terrible, because he had been for two years not drinking as a prayer for these two little girls. Real people, not just project, but people. And he felt bad. 
Two days later, my wife, who was in Chennai that week, rang Sam and said, I just need to tell you, Sam, that two weeks ago, those two little girls' father walked into church on a Sunday evening, sat through the service as people worshipped God, and then walked to the front and gave his life to Jesus, and he's quit alcohol. Keep praying for him, but something extraordinary has happened in his life. A month later, that man was baptised and given a new name, Genesis. Three years later, which is now, he is still completely alcohol-free. It was a miraculous transformation. I had Sam ring me after he had spoken to my wife in, in India, and he wept, and he said, I thought I'd let everybody down. I thought I'd let everybody down. I thought I'd let those two little girls down. But God had already done everything that was necessary. Just so that you know, this is real. This is not just projects and charities. These are people and lives. And we need to adjust and pull and push and pray. And when we do, miracles happen. Because God is alive today, just as he was then, and as he will be forever. Amen? Please stand.